This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. When you hear cage-free eggs, do you picture hens outside roaming around? Well, that's what those egg companies want you to think. Really, cage-free hens live crammed indoors. Meanwhile, Vital Farms hens are pasture-raised, on actual pastures, with plenty of grass and sunshine for healthier hens and better eggs. Vital Farms pasture-raised. Visit vitalfarms.com coupon and look for us in the black carton at the grocery store. Hey everybody, this is Steven. And this is Chris. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Is This Adulting? Every week, we're going to sit down to have a discussion about life, culture, our own mental health struggles, and just about anything you can think of. Have you ever wondered which breakfast cereal is the best? Or how to help your friends who are dealing with mental illness? Or why waterbeds were a thing? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have we got a show for you. And remember, kids, be happy, stay healthy, and go hug someone. Because you never know, they might just be starting a podcast. Hello, my name is Ali and this is Insight. Here with me, as she is every week, is Charlie. How are you? I'm good, just uh, busy packing for CrimeCon. Me too. I am so excited. We are mere days away from me getting on a plane and flying all the ways over to the US to Indianapolis and going to CrimeCon. I'm first and foremost, I'm looking forward to meeting you, of course. Of course. But I'm, <laughs> I'm also looking forward to meeting all of our pod family and our listeners. I think that's what CrimeCon will be all about for me, just meeting the people we have talked to in the last year. What are you most looking forward to? I'm actually, I keep going back and forth. I'm really looking forward to Thinking Sideways is having a meetup on Friday, which is kind of weird that I'm that excited about someone else's meetup. But, you know, (laughs) we're first and foremost podcast listeners. And so I feel like I'm going as a listener. I'm also, of course, looking forward to kind of hopefully growing our podcast a little bit, networking with other podcasters, meeting people who haven't listened yet, but would be interested so all of those things. And we'll be on Podcasters Row on the Friday, on day one and day two, which is the Friday and the Saturday of CrimeCon. So we'll be at booth number five. So just make sure you come and say hello and don't have us sitting by ourselves looking sad and lonely. That'll, that'll be really embarrassing. So please, <laughs> please do. And we want to thank our listeners who came out to our Sydney and our Kansas City meetups and made it yes. so we weren't sitting alone there too. They were lots of fun. So if you're in our Facebook group, you'll see all the photos from that. We had the best time at both our meetups. It was great. So obviously this is our last episode before CrimeCon. Next week we'll be having a post-CrimeCon break for the week because, well, we'll both be still in Indianapolis, but then we'll be traveling back to our own corners of the world and we'll need, I think we'll need the week off. But this week, it was a listener suggestion from so many people, but the first two were Jenny and Fiona, so thank you, ladies. This week, we are talking about the disappearance in Ohio, which is not far from where we'll be next weekend. It's the 2006 disappearance of Brian Schaefer. Brian Randall Schaefer was born February 25, 1979, to parents Randy and Renee Schaefer, He was the older of two boys. He had a younger brother, Derek, and they grew up in Pickerington, Ohio, 
Brian spends his whole life there. He goes to a local high school. He attends Ohio State University in Columbus, where he studies microbiology. After graduation, he starts studying medicine. And while he had a passion for medicine, he wanted to become a doctor. What he really wanted to do was start a band. He was into folk rock type music, but he was in his second year of medical school in March 2006. 27-year-old Brian's mother dies of myodysplasia. And I had to Google that because that's what I do. I have to know things. And the basics is it is a cancer of the bone marrow. Fast forward to three weeks later, and that's where our story picks up. Brian had been dating a fellow OSU student, Alexis Wagner, and they were getting really serious. But she would later report to police that a few days before he went missing, that he told her he was struggling with losing his mum, which it's completely understandable. It's his mother, and he was planning this massive step in his life, and she wouldn't be there for it. But Brian also told Alexis that she should move on with her life with someone else. And they did talk about that somewhat and really nothing come of it. It was just the way he was feeling at that moment in time. But he still loved her and they remained as in love and committed as they had been. College had broken up for spring break. So on March 31st, Brian went out with his dad, Randy, for a steak dinner. His dad said he seemed in a a pretty good mood. He was actually comforting his dad a bit. As Ali said, Brian's mom had just passed away a few weeks before, and Randy had ordered a dish that he and his wife usually ordered when they were out together, and anyone who's lost a loved one knows how these are the little things that really call up your grief. And so Randy started tearing up, and Brian said he'd be there with him as much as he could through this process. Randy also said Brian was tired from midterm exams and more the lack of sleep that goes along with preparing for those exams, but he had passed them and was feeling good about that. He was looking forward to this night out. After dinner with his dad around 9 p.m., Brian met up with a college friend, William Florence, who generally went by Clint. Clint and Brian were tight. They hung out all the time, and I read that they had been dorm mates at some point earlier on. On this night, they met at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, which is a bar near the campus. They were there to celebrate the beginning of spring break, like I bet a lot of the people there were. And as Allie said, Brian had a girlfriend at the time, but she wasn't out with them that night. This was more of a friend's night out. Alexis had gone home to visit her family before their spring break trip because she and Brian were set to go away together. They were to fly out on the 3rd, so that's two days later, for a romantic vacation to Miami. And multiple places report that a lot of people were expecting Brian to propose to her on this trip. Brian's brother and his wife were also supposed to join them, but they had gone to a comedy show beforehand. It ran late, they were getting tired, so they decided to just head home instead of going out. So we have Brian and Clint at this bar, the Ugly Tuna Saluna, and they had a couple of drinks there. Then they moved on to the next bar and did likewise. And in this early part of the night, probably 10, 1030, Brian called Alexis, who was at her parents' house, from his cell phone. Some reports say they talked, some say he got her voicemail, but regardless, he basically said, 
he misses her, he loves her, he couldn't wait to see her again, that, that general, usual good night type of call. Brian and Clint then continued to make their way down the Arena District of Columbus, and according to Clint, they'd stop at different bars for a shot or two before moving on. We are about midnight by this stage. The two guys are at a bar called The Short North, and for whatever reason, it probably wasn't happening where they were at, they decide to go back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Being they've had a bit or a lot to drink by this stage, Clint calls his friend Meredith Reed to pick them up and take them back there, which she does, and she decides to stay there with them for one last drink. Now, there is CCTV footage of this night. Both exits have a security camera because the area where this bar is located in, the South Campus Gateway, there is a high crime rate. So this CCTV footage, it's grainy, but it shows Brian entering the ugly tuna, but it never shows him leaving. It shows Brian at the top of the escalator outside the bar at about 1.50am, and he's talking to a couple of women who one of them he's friends with. He's friends with her from college. Brian then walks back inside the bar after these two women leave. Clint later tells police that he did see and speak to Brian when he comes back inside the bar, and he said that it was time to leave. However, at some stage, they somehow lose each other, which I guess isn't strange. You're out at a bar, you've been drinking, it's dark, there are a lot of people. Look, I've lost many a friend on a night out. I've gotten myself stuck in an emergency exit because none of my friends would answer their phones, but... This isn't about my awkwardly embarrassing moments. Uh, You guys can ask me about that on the Facebook Live we're doing on Sunday after CrimeCon, so please send in questions. But anyway, there is another CCTV camera, and it's covering the emergency exit at the Ugly Tuna. And this is a legit emergency exit, not just some strange room where you can't get out, no matter how many times you push the pool door. But again, I digress. The camera does not pick up Ryan leaving. But every other person there besides Brian can be seen leaving past one of these two cameras. There is no other way out. Well, there's no other official exit, but we'll get more into that in a little bit. Here we are a little after 2 a.m., which is last call in Ohio, and the bar has closed. You know, there is some inconsistent reporting, which we see. But Clint and Meredith were out in front of the Ugly Tuna, and they didn't see Brian. But Brian only lived a few blocks, like six blocks from where they were. So the two assumed that Brian had just wandered back home and in his drunken state had just not told them. They weren't entirely alarmed and they just headed home. Whether or not they tried his cell phone is where the inconsistent reporting comes in. I've seen them say that they called his cell phone and just got, it went straight to voicemail immediately. They waited outside a bit but he wasn't answering his phone, so they, again, just left, not being terribly alarmed. So I think there's a pretty big difference between them looking for him and calling his cell phone and them just kind of figuring he left and taking off themselves. I would I would hope that the calling the cell phone is what, in fact, happened. As you can imagine, investigators watched every CCTV angle they could find, and they analyzed them for signs of what happened to Brian or discrepancies in what Clint and Meredith said had happened, but the only thing missing from the CCTV footage was Brian leaving the bar again. And it boils down to this. There was maybe a 20-minute window where Brian disappeared from the bar. 
And this is a bar that didn't have many exits. It had many people in there, at least a handful who knew him, yet no one saw anything. Over the weekend, Derek, Brian's brother, Randy, his dad, and Alexis all tried to call and contact Brian, but there was never any answer. They weren't entirely concerned, though. They assumed he was sleeping off his week of cramming for exams. These exams came just three weeks after losing his mother to cancer, and they also knew he was out for a night at the bars with a friend. Randy noticed that Brian was worn out at dinner that Friday night, and let's not forget he wasn't exactly 20 anymore, and I can testify that getting over a night of drinking certainly doesn't get easier the older you get. So between the exhaustion and the hangover, they all just thought he was sleeping it off. Alexis heads back to Brian's apartment on the Sunday. Brian's car was there and all his possessions were there too, including his glasses, which he needed to see. He did have contacts in that night, but for anyone who wears contacts, they aren't something that can just be left in all the time. And it's probably best that you don't wear them all the time either. They do need to be taken out and cleaned. But there were no signs of a struggle there and all seemed to look like they normally did. Nothing to indicate that he was taking off or going away for a little while. He hadn't even packed for his trip to Miami. But the panic does set in when Brian doesn't show and he misses his flight to Miami on the Monday morning. So Brian was reported missing and the search and the investigation starts. There is the official police investigation and then the family arranges their own. They put up flyers all up and down the area where Brian was that night They checked dumpsters, thinking that maybe he got into a fight. Maybe he was so drunk he possibly crawled into one of them and went to sleep. They searched the rivers in the area, and this goes on for about a month. And then something happens in May of 2006. Someone breaks into Brian's apartment, and the door is kicked in, and a few items are taken. And it does seem to be your typical break and enter, really. You know, you break in, grab some stuff of value, and then you leave. And there were problems with break and enters in the area. As I said, this area did have a high crime rate at that time. But in this case, they took a DVD player and some other little electronics. And it does seem kind of like an amateur job because there were a few things that were worth a decent amount left behind. Like his dad Randy said that Brian had two expensive guitars and they were still there. So because of this, the police were able to rule out any connection between Brian's disappearance and the robbery. Yeah, looking at the robbery, it definitely sounds to me like it was just a coincidence that his apartment was also hit. Because other apartments were hit, like you said, it was a high crime area. And they didn't seem to take anything that would be linked to his disappearance. They left high value items behind. It just kind of seems like a quick and easy smash and grab type thing. I mean, they could have been canvassing the area, realised that no one had been there for a couple of days, and it made it an easy target. Exactly. At this point, there were no leads for the police. Everyone out that night was questioned, and some people were even polygraphed. Another thing that's interesting at this point, everyone in Brian's life, they were involved with the search. They were putting up flyers. They were helping the police investigation any way they could. Alexis kept calling his cell phone every day. And you hear that in times like this, 
people do this. They want to hear their loved one's voice, even though they know the other person isn't going to pick up. And these calls all went straight to voicemail. So we can probably assume, like in the Stephen Kocher case that we covered back in October, the battery charge on the phone ran out, though it's possible the phone was out of range or damaged somehow. Clint originally cooperated with the police and was helping with the search efforts when Brian first disappeared. But then he lawyered up and refused to take a polygraph test or speak further with the police. Even years later, when people want to interview him, he still is stating that he couldn't answer any questions and everything just needed to go through his attorney. I would not try to draw conclusions based on this because we don't know exactly what transpired between cooperating and not cooperating. Sometimes the police will come at someone hard. Perhaps that's what's happened here, that Clint started feeling like he was possibly a suspect. And any lawyer will tell you that at the first whiff of you being a suspect, you really need to talk to a lawyer about protecting your rights, if not earlier, as soon as the police want to talk to you. I did have this whole spiel on refusing to talk to the police and it being a presumption of guilt, but it's funny because leading up to recording this episode, someone in the group, I think it was Jessica, she mentioned how it generally is the thought of true crime podcasts that if someone lawyers up, there is a presumption of guilt. But she said if she was questioned, she would as well. And that seemed to be the consensus of the group, regardless if you're innocent or guilty. And that got me thinking what I would do. And it's hard because I've never been in that situation, but I've had to attend court in my job. And what you say to police in that original statement and the like, it can affect the whole investigation. So I think that I would lawyer up right away as well, not only to protect myself in saying something stupid because I do have a filter problem, but also to make sure that I'm not letting my emotions misdirect the police investigation. Clint's lawyer is has said he's the one who told Clint, don't take the polygraph and don't do interviews. Yeah. And the reason he said is that Clint already told the police everything he knew. There was nothing left to say. There was nothing left to reveal or talk about. So there was really no point in him continuing to go in for questioning. Re- honestly, it really wouldn't benefit him or the police if he already told the police everything. Randy and Meredith did both take polygraphs at the time of the original investigation. They had both seen Brian that night. And Derek, I again, I've seen it say that Derek took a polygraph. I've seen it said that he wasn't asked to. We know that Clint didn't. The two women Brian was last seen talking to, they said they were never asked to take a polygraph. And that might be because the CCTV footage shows Brian alive and well, though drunk, when he walked away from them. So it may just not have seemed that important to the police to polygraph them. And I think the CCTV footage shows the two women leaving the bar. So it's very unlikely they would know anything anyway. But then six months after Brian went missing, Alexis calls his phone again and the phone actually rings before going through to voicemail. So of course the police look into this His cell phone pings off a tower in Hilliard, which is a suburb of Columbus, and this leads some people to believe that Brian left on his own accord. But nothing else leads from this. The police don't find any other evidence of what that means or where Brian or his cell phone is. 
As for the cell phone ping, I mean, there is always the chance that the person responsible for his disappearance, maybe he possibly turned the phone on and then got rid of it once and for all. Maybe he was curious of who tried to call Brian after he disappeared and thought that, look, he's been missing a few months, so it's safe to use the phone, which we know from other cases and from what we discovered here, that's not the case. And as far as the actual searches go, as I said, they searched dumpsters around the alleys close to the bar, and there were a lot. Brian's family and friends searched the dumpsters as well, because it would make sense that that would be where they find him. The problem with that is, though, the dumpsters weren't checked until Monday, possibly later in the day after he was reported missing. The problem there is after a busy weekend, some of these dumpsters might have already been emptied. And they tried to work around this by going to the local landfill and they used cadaver dogs there. But as we know, nothing was found there either. Another thing they did was search the local river, the Olentangy River, and they looked for Brian or any evidence of foul play or any evidence of Brian being near there. A psychic came forward and said that he had a vision of Brian in a body of water near a bridge pier. So again, the river and around the river was searched. It's so sad. I did, I did read that Randy would walk up and down the rivers for months and afterwards just looking for him. Yeah, some of what I've read interviews with Randy, he seemed to believe in these psychics more than, you know, some, yeah. some of our listeners or some other uh, families did. So he really did take their input into consideration but even without the psychic saying body of water it it's a pretty good bet to go I mean it's pretty safe to look down there and I can understand why Randy would cling on to that considering they really didn't find anything in the investigation of what happened to Brian so even though it was a long shot I can understand why Randy would cling on to that as a chance of what happened to him as the tips are drying up from the police these are the tips that are coming in so how do you not how do you not kind of put it aside where it's coming from and at least try to look exactly nothing came from these river searches and i don't know if they use diverse sonar or how deep they searched but you would think at some point if that's what happened to him something would have floated up or gotten caught in a branch either there or further downstream the truth is most bodies dumped in water, unless they're weighed down or trapped inside a car, they will be discovered. But nothing has been found in that area. And what seems like an improbable chance of poor luck for a family that had already lost a mother to a rare form of cancer and a son to a mysterious disappearance, Brian's father Randy died in a freak accident in September of 2008. A severe windstorm swept central Ohio, and while in his backyard, presumably headed to his shed, a branch from a tree snapped and struck Randy. He was one of six people killed in this particular storm, and he was only 55 years old. After Randy's tragic death, an online obituary was put up, and as usual, there's a guest book for people to leave their thoughts and condolences online. I'm sure everybody's seen these types of obituaries. On this guest book, someone left condolences that read, Love you, Dad, Brian. And then it said U.S. Virgin Islands. Of course, the police were on it. But it traced back to a public computer in nearby Franklin County, not the U.S. Virgin Islands. 
they still notified the authorities and the media in the U.S. Virgin Islands on the off chance that Brian was there. Brian's picture and story ran in the papers and a hotline was set up, but nothing ever came of it. In my view, the odds are that it was a hoax from someone thinking it would be funny and didn't stop to think about Brian's brother, Derek, and that in two and a half years, he had lost both his parents and his brother under unusual circumstances. It's probably a hoax someone thought was funny, but it decidedly was not funny. It's a bit of an ass thing to do. Absolutely. Because it clearly was a prank, because if Brian truly walked away from his life, look, I highly doubt he would do this he would make a comment if he was trying to hide away and make it look so obvious it was from him you would think if he ran away on his own volition I don't think he would have commented at all or he would have done it a bit more anonymously at the very least so we'll move on to the theory section now so we will do a lot of speculation from here on through so I do apologize to those who don't like speculation but there is very little to go on in this case so we must speculate So firstly, yes, Brian may have somehow gotten out of the bar and gotten undetected on camera. He could have changed his clothes and put on a hat. He may have even snuck out using, there was a freight elevator where the bar got its deliveries. He could have gone through there. Although I do imagine that the elevator would have had also some sort of CCTV camera as well. I did read somewhere that Columbus does boast more surveillance cameras than any other Ohio city. And investigators do comb through every second of footage from the area relentlessly, and Brian never turns up. Brian's family don't believe he would just run away. He was in love, and he was doing really well at school. They also don't believe he would have ever committed suicide. Because yes, his mother had just died, and they were close, but he had so much coming up to look forward to. He had his trip with his girlfriend to Miami. He had a big Pearl Jam concert coming up in June of that year. And he loved Pearl Jam. They had a big influence on his life. So much so that he had a Pearl Jam tattoo on his upper right arm. And he wanted to be a musician. And these things, he was really looking forward to them. And his family said that, yes, of course he was grieving the passing of his mother. But he wasn't really depressed. He was out to have a good time that night to celebrate the end of another semester. And because he isn't seen exiting the bar on camera, I mean, there is a theory that he possibly got changed and, you know, put a hat on and kept his head down. But that doesn't make sense to me. The camera may have missed him. Maybe it panned across the area and didn't catch him. But I don't think he ever left the bar and something happened inside of it, most likely after it was closed. I mean, if he actually left the bar at some stage, I really do believe the cameras would have picked him up and they didn't. And as I said, everyone else in the bar that night was seen leaving the bar on camera. The fact that the only one not is the guy that's now been missing 11 years, that means something to me. There's no other explanation to possibly explain why he wasn't seen exiting the bar. It seems like a really odd plan to go out get completely drunk and then try to disappear and if he did try to disguise himself in the cctv footage it means he knew the camera was there and he planned ahead with a disguise or a hat or something i just don't see that happening it doesn't make any sense to me that he just walked off on his own or that he planned to walk off on his own So I guess the next question could be is there any way he could leave the bar and not get caught on camera 
There was some construction going on at the bar at the time, and because of this, the service door was left open. Now, this generally wasn't open to the public, so there was no reason for a surveillance camera. But because of this construction, you could get out from that area. But remember, this was at night. There wouldn't have been a lot of light around, and there would have been debris and just stuff everywhere, and there wouldn't have been anyone around. So you can imagine how dangerous this area would be. But if something happened there, you would think, look, no, he definitely would have been found when the construction recommenced. Or if he got out and was hurt, you would think he would have been found soon after. And again, there has been some speculation that I've read that this area was under surveillance by CCTV. If it actually was, or if the cameras were actually working, look, I don't know. We may or probably won't ever know. And the frustrating thing is the CCTV footage that they did have, it's gone missing. No one knows where it is and no one knows what happened to it. I also read someone saying, well, there was a second floor balcony. Possibly he jumped off of that to leave without being detected. But I really think a six foot two guy jumping off a balcony would have gone detected by the many people in the area at the time. You would imagine there would have been a lot of people around being it was the end of school for the semester. Right. And it was closing time. So everyone was leaving and nobody saw a guy jump off a balcony. And I guess before we move on from this, Brian's bank accounts were never accessed. So there was no attempt to use his credit cards. Besides that one ping, which by all reports may have just been a glitch in the system, It may have never actually been used, which makes sense considering his girlfriend Alexis called him so many times and it went straight through to voicemail. And that one time it just happens to get through. That doesn't seem right to me. But you would imagine there would have been sightings too. Look, Brian was a good looking guy and he was tall. As you said, Charlie, he was six foot two. He would have definitely stood out. But the only sighting I could find ended up being a local homeless man that was definitely not Brian. And the fact he had no money with him that we know of, I guess, it would have made it very difficult to travel a great distance. And none of this seems like a possibility to me. I really don't think there is any chance he ran away. I just can't see him leaving his dad and his brother so soon after his mother passed away. Look, I guess I don't know him personally, but from all accounts, he was close to his family. I just don't see it. One thing with the cell phone ping, it came from outside Columbus. So he ran off to start a new life a couple miles away. That makes absolutely no sense. I think the cell phone ping was either a glitch in the system or, like you said, someone turned it on, whether a teenager found it thrown out in the woods or something and turned it on and for some whatever reason it actually powered up or they charged at home and turned it on but then got scared because they figured it was stolen turned it back off you know there there are explanations and most of them make more sense than that brian went outside of columbus and no one saw him again that doesn't make sense to me another theory is that clint helped brian disappear or at least knew what was going on which I guess does make sense in a way because that could be why he didn't and still doesn't want to talk to the police. He could be protecting the location of where Brian went to hide out. But then, and I'll keep on going back to this, how doesn't Brian show up exiting on the camera if that was the case? Look, I know we've talked about why Clint may have lawyered up and refused to talk to the police, but regardless, 
maybe he does know something and he's hiding it. Meredith passed her polygraph, as you said, Charlie. So did everyone else approached by the police on the matter. However, Clint just keeps saying no. There could be a chance he knows way more than what he's saying. And Brian's family do think that too. But no evidence whatsoever of Brian being alive has ever turned up since that surveillance video of him talking to the two women. So I don't know. Could Clint be the key of solving the case? I don't think he's involved. I'm not sure he knows anything more than what he said. He may know a bit more. Brian may have said something to him, but I don't think he's directly involved. I know that Clint's lawyer a few years after the disappearance said that a detective told him that the dis- that they believed Brian had run off and was alive somewhere, but no detective has said that to the press. This is just what Clint's lawyer is saying, but that Clint doesn't know anything. And honestly, I think if Clint felt like he was a suspect in his friend's disappearance, which may have turned into a murder charge at some point, why wouldn't he say, you know, dude, you're on your own. I'm not protecting you. He's in New York City, guys. Go get him. He was a graduate student himself. He was going for a a big career just like Brian. Why he would risk all of that just to not tell Brian's dad where he was. I don't see too many friends, unless he thought Brian was in danger, that he would have covered up where he went. I just have a hard time believing that Brian could have run away and he's never been seen. Yeah, and he didn't take anything. He had expensive things in his home, like we said, that he could have pawned before he left so he had some money. There were no signs that he was looking to leave. Yes, his mom died and he was sad about that. Uh, By all appearances, it made it look like he was actually pulling closer to his family, not pulling further away. Well, exactly. He had dinner with his father that night. He invited his brother and his brother's wife out with them. I, I can't see him running away wanting after wanting to spend all this time with his family. No, I could see him maybe disappearing for two days to, I don't know, clear his head or lock himself in his apartment for a little bit. But when he didn't get on that plane to go to Miami with Alexis, I think that's when it became obvious that something had happened and I don't think he left on his own and didn't show up for that trip on purpose. So moving on from that, before you ask, yes, Brian falling into the body of water is a popular theory. We covered this briefly in the Manchester Canal Pusher episode, and it seems this episode comes up a lot. This idea of young men falling into or being pushed into the water. We've heard it in another city in England. Now we're hearing it quite a bit of it in Boston right now. We're going to talk about the smiley face murderer, which we talked about in our Manchester Canal Pusher. Of course, talking about the smiley face murderer, um, just really briefly, that's this idea that two New York City detectives, Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duarte, came up with in regard to 45 drowning deaths of college-age men in 11 Midwestern states. We're talking, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s. This is the right time and place for Brian to be a potential victim. The reason these are called smiley face murders is that smiley face graffiti was found near the locations where the victims died. And of course, we can't confirm that because we don't have a body or a location to look for the graffiti. Like Brian, in each case, the drowning incidents occurred after the victim left a bar, 
or maybe a party, usually inebriated. And as such, the occurrences of these men falling into bodies of water were ruled accidental. Again, just like the Manchester Pusher case. Gannon and Duarte argued that the appearance of the smiley face graffiti near where these victims died showed enough of a signature to prove that it was the work of a serial killer or possibly a group of serial killers. This theory has sparked a lot of debate between law enforcement experts and officials. Some bought into the idea, others did not. It's kind of the same with the families of the men. Some think there is something to this and others think there are ulterior motives among those pushing the theory. It's also mentioned in an article I read that the actual graffiti of a smiley face is one of the most common tags and that in pretty much any five mile radius, you're going to come across a smiley face graffiti somewhere. It doesn't appear that it's the same style smiley face in each of these cases, which may be why some people lean towards a gang of killers, like each one has their own style smiley face tag. The FBI looked at this and decided that they don't think the theory holds any water. No pun intended there. But the theory is still popular enough and has enough people buying into it that the smiley face killer theory has come up in this discussion of Brian Schaefer's disappearance. Some feel that this theory is bolstered by the psychic telling Randy that his son's body was in water near a bridge. But to be fair, a number of psychics also told Randy that Brian was still alive. So if you believe in psychic abilities to locate missing persons, we have one saying water and then several saying he's alive. So you'll have to take that into your own consideration. I really don't believe this is what happened because, he's, as you said, Charlie, his body would have been found, as was the case with Joey LeButt last year. Not every man who disappears while on a night out with friends drinking ends up in a body of water. Honestly, I kind of get sick of hearing this theory. I mean, yes, of course it does happen, but it doesn't mean it has to happen every time, and it doesn't mean it had to happen this time. Again, he would have had to be picked up by the CCTV at some stage. I think the evidence in this case, as we keep speculating, I think we're going to keep going back to the the lack of evidence is our evidence. There is no evidence of him leaving the bar. There is no evidence of him being in the water, near the water. No one saw him there. None of his clothes have shown up. I agree with you. It's hard to really buy into a theory when there's such a complete lack of evidence of it. And speaking of lack of evidence, many people speculate that maybe Brian was killed inside the Ugly Tuna Saluna, that maybe he got into a fight with someone, maybe they tried to rob him and he got killed. And then his remains were disposed of and somehow hidden inside the bar. Maybe it was within the construction site. Maybe there was a hole or a crevice that was going to be filled in the next day and no one was the wiser. Maybe the killer filled it in himself. Now, I couldn't find anywhere that said where the cadaver dogs was used within the bar. And that is something that could have happened easily. And I now go back to when I looked into the Springfield 3 case, and that was years ago now, but there is a technology where they can use scanning devices that can look through, you know, cement or drywall or what have you. And this is something that they can do tomorrow if they wanted to. It's not an exact science, but it's something. It's at least more than what we know now. 
Others speculate that perhaps Brian's murderer smuggled his remains out in a garbage bin or maybe a delivery container, but that would suggest it was an employee of the bar or someone that knew the area well, like one of the construction workers or another person who worked at any of the bars in the area. I just find it hard to believe that no one else saw anything, though. Okay, so I said lack of evidence was a big thing. Lack of witnesses is another big thing. Nobody saw anything? I don't know. I also don't believe he committed suicide for a lot of the same reasons. He wasn't seen leaving and the police haven't found a body. And you can, you're only able to hide your own body so well. And I really don't think he could have gotten out without someone seeing him, without at least the camera seeing him. And as for the same reasons, I don't think he ran away. He had the Pearl Jam tickets. He was close to finishing medical school, which is something that he really wanted to do. He really wanted to become a doctor. I just can't see him leaving his family, who he seemed to love dearly. And really, besides his mother passing away, which, as I said, yes, he was grieving, but it wasn't something that he wasn't dealing with. There really isn't any other trigger, anything to make me think that he was suicidal. I don't think suicide is is a really serious consideration here, but there is always the possibility that there was an accident that happened. He was drinking. We're all adults here. We've been drunk. Well, okay, maybe not everyone listening. I know my husband listens and he doesn't drink, but most of us and some of us have been more drunk than others and not always in safe spaces. We're not always in our home doing this. We may stumble and we may hurt ourselves Also, our judgment after more than a few drinks, let alone four or five hours of drinking, it's not the best. It's pretty safe to say that Brian was disoriented. He didn't go out the escalator exit, so what if he went through that service door and onto the construction site by accident? It's been reported that the construction area would have been hard to navigate sober to the point that the police don't think he went out that way. But what if he did? And he could have knocked into something that fell over, or he could have fallen and hit his head on something. I mean, we'd be here all day if we went over all the hazards at a construction site. He would have been there hurt and unseen for at least several hours, possibly longer, if the construction workers weren't working over the weekend. If the door wasn't secure, it's possible that whoever did find his body on the site panicked, thinking that they would be liable, and decided to dispose of his remains instead of calling the police. And now that seems interesting on the surface, but it would mean the owner of the site or the company would have been the one who found him because the workers? What do they care if the owner has an insurance payout? It wouldn't be their money. Would they really be that concerned about their boss's insurance rates to risk actual jail time for hiding a body? I find that doubtful, and I find it doubtful that the owner was on a site on a Saturday morning as well. Another idea going along those lines is that maybe Brian went in the construction site and fell into a hole or a crevice and died, and the next day it was filled with the construction workers not realizing it. I mean, we don't know the exact conditions of this site, so this is a bit of a stretch, But the idea that Brian left a bar undetected or he jumped off a balcony or he randomly decided to wander off and start a new life, I mean, those are all stretches too. So we're just putting this one on the table with it. And then again, along the lines of an accident, kind of with the smiley face killer theory, he maybe he did fall into the river. 
he maneuvered the construction site without issue and no one saw him. Or he jumped off that second floor balcony with no one seeing him. Or he made it through another exit without the camera seeing him. Somehow he made it out of the bar and he stumbled up on the bridge or the pier and he fell into the river. He wouldn't have needed to be that drunk really. He was sleep deprived. His mother had just died. He was getting ready to propose to his girlfriend. He was finishing up his second year at medical school, which meant taking the first step in the licensing exams. Uh, he could have been drunk, but mostly tired and distracted and fell in. But again, all this depends on him exiting that bar completely undetected. Which I find unlikely. Right. So I feel like we have a whole bunch of theories that depend on did he get out of that bar and just a few theories of him still being in that bar. So here is what I think. I don't believe Brian left on his own accord. I believe he was murdered or accidentally killed, possibly by someone he knew. And I think there's a good chance he could still be in that bar. I can't see any other way around that because he wasn't seen leaving and I don't see him leaving by any other means. And because, I mean, Brian was set to propose to Alexis, a man who was getting ready to disappear or commit suicide, he wouldn't have made or discussed these plans with anyone, let alone having something big organised to actually do it if he was going to disappear or commit suicide. I think that the bar needs to be searched very thoroughly search the bar guys search the bar i mean that would either put to rest some of these things or it would confirm some things but you know i'm not gonna say that there's no way he got out of that bar but i think because of how hard it would have been for him to get out of that bar completely undetected the bar needs to be searched very thoroughly okay so if he did get out there would be some evidence left behind you would imagine I really imagine if he went out that construction door and made it through the construction site, he would have overturned something. Police do not seem to think he went through that construction site. So that leaves us with him jumping off a balcony or using exits that had CCTV cameras pointed at them and that he managed to get out undetected. That's just, it's hard for me to believe that. I see a lot of similarities here between Brian's disappearance and another one that I'm following closely, and that's Corey McLeag from the UK. Both of these were young guys with so much going on. They had really promising futures. Both were enjoying a night out on the town prior to the disappearance. Both were seen at some stage on surveillance cameras, but then not after a certain point when they were last seen. And both disappeared into thin air in the early hours of the morning. I mean, I get the cases aren't related, but there are some creepy similarities. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that both of these cases really bother me. So to finish up, just some information on Brian. Brian Randall Schaefer was 27 years old when he disappeared. Today, he would be 38. At the time of his disappearance, Brian was wearing an olive green short-sleeved shirt with a white long-sleeved shirt underneath. He had on blue jeans, tennis shoes, and a yellow cancer awareness bracelet. Brian is six foot two or 188 centimetres tall, and at the time of his disappearance, he was 170 pounds, 77 kilograms. Brian had short brown hair and hazel eyes with a dot on the iris of his left eye, 
And as I said earlier, he had a Pearl Jam symbol tattoo on his upper right bicep. Brian's family run a website where you can read through everything we talked about today. Plus, there are some additional articles and other things that you can research yourself. That website is findbrianschafer.com, but we'll link it in the usual places. Okay, so we'll move on to some thank yous. Firstly, to our patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Melissa M, Stephanie C, Olivia M, who is one of my friends. So hello, Olivia. And also Marissa from the Fabulous Vanished podcast. Seriously, if you don't listen and you are interested in missing persons cases like the one we covered today, you really need to download that one in about five minutes. And then to our beautiful five-star reviews, thank you to Familiar K. Leo, IJPL Mama, Mrs. W123, Maiden Without Stress, and Unsolved Crime for Life. You guys are the best. We are on Facebook where we have the page where we post all the episodes and there is also a discussion group, which is exactly that. It's a private group where we discuss episodes, documentaries, other podcasts we listen to, and any other case that we're interested in. Now, we, as I mentioned before, we are doing a live AMA on the Sunday night after CrimeCon in the Facebook group. So you can watch that if you can and ask questions. There is apparently going to be a drinking game of some sort that I'm not entirely sure of the rules, but we'll just wing it. For international listeners and other people who can't watch, please send us questions to our email, insightfulpod at gmail.com. I also, no, I will, I will start a thread in the group where if you can't watch live or if you just want to get in early, you can post your questions there as well. We are on Twitter where you can chat to Charlie and that's at insightfulpod. I post photos on Instagram and that's at insightpod. I will also be Snapchatting at CrimeCon, so if you want to see a bunch of your favourite podcasters possibly wearing silly Snapchat filters, follow us at Insight Podcast on Snapchat. We have a PayPal for a one-off donation and a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation. On Patreon, we have some great rewards for our patrons, like a monthly bonus episode. I think the current one is still Oakville Blobs. We also have stickers, magnets, t-shirts, as well as a lovely thank you card from Charlie, which everyone seems to love. All links are on our website, insightpod.com, and you can also listen to our episodes there and read our show notes and access some additional research if you want to read up some more yourself. And finally, it would mean the world to us if you would rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. It does help spread the word and keep us doing what we do. And I think that is about all until we see you back here in two weeks or at CrimeCon or on our Facebook group or on the socials during CrimeCon. There is just a lot going on at the moment. But thank you and we will see you all soon.